Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Long before Wynton Marsalis arrived in the plush halls of Lincoln Center, jazz was often performed in far more dangerous venues. Greats like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Billie Holiday found their footing on the stages of America's most notorious vice districts, where big players in the mob, such as Al Capone and Mickey Cohen, called the shots. In his new book, Dangerous Rhythms, journalist T.J. English explores the complexities of this corner of the underworld, where venues like the Cotton Club explicitly upheld the racial dynamics of Jim Crow America, while simultaneously providing Black musicians with otherwise unavailable opportunities. But the emerging civil rights movement disrupted this glorified plantation system, as English calls it, just as it eventually upended both the music and the mob. T.J. English, who has written half a dozen books about organized crime and the mob, joins us to talk about jazz's dangerous rhythms. Thanks so much for chatting with me, T.J. My pleasure. So let's talk about where jazz began, which is New Orleans, and how the how the mob began in New Orleans. Because, I mean, at this point, it's very hard to extract the mob from the myth of shady clubs and bordellos, but... How did the mob end up running most of the honky-tonk saloons and dance halls in New Orleans where you could see all of these jazz greats playing? Well, it might be useful to first define the term the mob because a lot of people are unclear on that. The mob is uh, another term for organized crime. Um, and it, it includes the mafia, but... Um, contrary to what many people believe, the mafia did not control or run organized crime in the United States. The mafia is a part of the mob, a subset of the mob, a very important and powerful subset of the mob, but, but not the mob in its entirety. The term the mob refers to an ecosystem of organized crime that involves criminals but also involves elements of legitimate society who are entangled with it or willfully play along with it. So corrupt politicians, corrupt police officers, anyone who's sort of engaging in the black market aspect of the underworld is part of the mob. So in New Orleans, in the latter uh, years of the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th century, there was a... Uh, long wave of Sicilian immigration into New Orleans. And this became the basis of, of uh, a lot of interesting cultural developments in New Orleans, but also was crucial to the music and particularly the venues where the music was heard uh, as the music also was just developing around those same years. And so a lot of the clubs in a very famous part of um, New Orleans that no longer exists called Storyville, uh, which was kind of a vice district that existed in New Orleans in the first decade of the 20th century. It's where the houses of prostitution were. It's where uh, a lot of what would later be called nightclubs existed. Uh, at that time, they were called honky-tonks or saloons. Uh, the, the term nightclubs hadn't really come into common use. But this is 
was an interesting quirk of history that made it possible for the underworld figures to be the primary employers of this phenomenal new music that was beginning to take the country by storm. Um, since jazz rose from the streets, it was not something like European classical music that you would go to a proper theater to hear, or you would, or it would be an extension of a, a some sort of music academy, or it would exist in high society in some way. Jazz was very much from the streets, and so it was it was looked down upon by the cultural institutions, and so it was the streets, literally the streets in some cases. That's where you would hear music first started being played on street corners, and they would pass the hat. Uh, but once um, people realized that there was money to be made from it, um, they started to incorporate jazz bands into the clubs and into the saloons and into the honky-tonks. By the 1930s and 40s, in many ways, the underworld figures would use the nightclubs as a way to launder their profits. Once they got into the stage where they needed to explain to the uh, Internal Revenue Service where their money was coming from, jazz clubs became a very popular way to serve as a front for underworld figures to launder their money. And this was great for jazz because the clubs weren't burdened with the idea of having to make a profit um, because they didn't really exist for that purpose. And this became a phenomenon that fueled the popularity of the music and also established and laid down a template for a type of relationship that would exist between the underworld and this music for the next 80 years or so. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that dynamic, because one of the things you point out right from the jump is that a lot of these mob bosses, even though they're coming from ethnic minorities too, they're they're white men and they have a lot more power than the largely black musicians they're employing. What was that relationship like in the beginning when things were kicking off? And like, what did it look like materially? Were you, you know, bound to a particular club or were you something of a free agent? Yeah, that's an interesting point because we are talking about what would later become defined as Caucasian men, although there was a lot of racial discrimination against Sicilians, really against all quote-unquote dark-skinned people in the United States. There was a fierce race and class hierarchy. So really what it was was the immigrant class, uh, Italians and Irish and Jews, forming a, a business uh, model to employ mostly African-American musicians. And this was all separate from the WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, structure itself. Um, so jazz was seen as, you know, music that was kind of um, illicit or dark or from the gutter or from the other side of society. It was a big part of its appeal, by the way. Um, and this is an, an important point because from the very beginning, jazz, in a way, developed a persona uh, based on the fact that the clubs were owned and run by underworld figures. It became part of the attraction of jazz. It always had this sort of little bit naughty side, illicit side. But in terms of your, your point about the racial dynamics of the relationship and the, and the plantation 
mentality that existed, yes, this is very true. In fact, some of the early clubs that were really well-known in many cities in New Orleans and in New York and other places, the Cotton Club, a club called the Plantation, uh, these names were so popular that there would be a cotton club in three or four different cities or a plantation club in a number of different cities. And the decor in these clubs was always the decor of the antebellum South you know, the the cotton-picking motif was worked into the visual decor of the place. So um, jazz's development in the business of jazz was definitely evoking an earlier time when slavery was in existence and this sort of Southern mentality that was transported into the development of, of jazz, and it would eventually cause a very high degree of conflict as black jazz musicians gained power in the culture and began to rebel against it. It is in some ways really overt in that you do have these names and you do have the aesthetic that just is on its face, just so obviously racist. But on the other hand, you also do have the like the sheer numbers, the numbers of jazz musicians who are able to get a start and get a career and really like launch into the stratosphere as a result of these clubs. Or you've got Louis Armstrong, one of the case studies in your book, who chose to work largely in protected, as he called them, clubs, you know, for the mob and didn't really play outside of them. Can you talk more about that tension between, you know, the inherent racism of the system, but also the way that black musicians especially, you know, did achieve so much success as a result of this double bind almost? Yeah, uh, good, good question. This really is at the core of, of this subject. Um, when I first started to tackle this subject, one of the first questions that came to me is, um, de really defining the nature of this relationship. Because there were two camps. There were a lot of people who would say, oh, the mob clubs were great for the musicians. They provided the opportunities. Uh, the clubs that were controlled by the mob were known to have better working conditions. You got paid on time. Um, there was a level of protection in the clubs that you didn't have to worry about violence in the clubs, which was a, which was a concern. Um, so, Early stars of jazz, like Louis Armstrong, gravitated towards those clubs that were mob-controlled. In Armstrong's case, he gravitated towards it in every aspect of his musical career. He had a, a mob-connected guy who was his manager. He played mostly in mob-connected clubs. It was sort of a mentality of, th if this business is going to be run by the criminal underworld, then let me get my guy who's the most connected in the criminal underworld to be my protectors. And that was a, that was a way of thinking um, that was prominent, maybe even dominant amongst the most successful of the musicians. But where that relationship comes from is very interesting to me. Jazz begins in the first decade of the 20th century. There had been a 30-year reign of terror in the United States leading up to that period that we refer to as the period of lynching, primarily in the South, but also elsewhere. And the reverberations of this campaign of terror, I think, affected African-Americans everywhere in the United States. 
And so as jazz begins to formulate, and I even make the argument that the nature of jazz music in some ways came as a response to this reign of terror, that it was an expression of existential joy. It, It was a revolutionary act. But in terms of the business relationships, early jazz musicians were having to deal with the reality that they were existing in a toxic environment. Uh, and that they would be performing their music in clubs that were primarily white audiences. In fact, many of the, the biggest clubs were Jim Crow clubs. They didn't allow blacks in as patrons. So they were, black musicians were going to be in, uh, performing in clubs that were owned by white underworld figures and the audience was going to be primarily white people. And so I think there was a feeling that you didn't really have a choice, that that was the system. There was no other system. If you were going to be audacious enough to think that you could make a living as a jazz musician at a time when this music was just being created and the business structure was just being created, then that was the only game in town. You you you, you didn't have an option. Um, now, I, I detail in the book a lot of different ways that you might respond to that as a musician. Louis Armstrong being one example, but there were others that were less happy with the way things were, and there were some that tried to work around it. Uh, there were some who worked within it who were depressed by it, like Mary Lou Williams, a piano player who sort of played in all the, the great jazz underworld eras of the 20th century, and she wound up hating it and basically leaving jazz at a, a certain point because of what she called the muck and the mud of the jazz business. Um, but I should say in the later decades of the 20th century, in the 60s and the 70s, very clearly is musicians rebelling against the plantation system. And it's really an outgrowth of the civil rights movement. Um, and so the system is made to change. This ultimately plays a a, a role, a small role in bringing bringing down the mob in the sense that it separates the mob from the nightclubs. Well, and the the cool thing about your book is that you can get into the the complications in a story like how jazz changes in relation to the civil rights movement. To talk about a man like Armstrong, for instance, he was viewed by a lot of Black Americans in the civil rights movement as a kind of Uncle Tom figure who came too little, too late to the struggle for civil rights. Well, it's another fascinating sub-theme of of the overall story. Yes, Louis Armstrong uh, was out of step. He wasn't the only one. Sammy Davis Jr. also famously was castigated by younger African Americans who no longer were willing to accept what was seen as a subservient model. In fact, a lot of the jazz musicians, the older jazz musicians, were called on the carpet um, there's some fascinating interviews with people like uh, Cab Calloway and Duke Ellington, who uh, existed a- at a time when this uh, plantation system was very much in effect. And they flourished in that system. Um, Duke Ellington is a fascinating case study of how he basically utilized that system to realize his highest level of artistic potential. Duke Ellington um, was the house band at the Cotton Club in the late 1920s, at the peak years of the Prohibition era. He, he had an orchestra, a huge orchestra, the 
the jazz clubs that were owned and run by the mobsters had the money to finance orchestras where there was 25, 30 members in the orchestra. So in that sense, they were they were great for the development of the music. Ellington was very aware that he was playing in a club that was owned by white gangsters, that the audience was primarily white people who were titillated by the fact that they were coming to Harlem, listening to black music, basically going to the other side of the racial fence and indulging in African-American culture through jazz, and that they were intoxicated by it. They were being seduced by it. And Ellington was very aware of this. And if you listen to his music from the late 20s, Creole Love Song and the song The Mooch and, and a song called Black and Tan Fantasy. These were compositions that were hyper aware of the fact that he was writing and playing music of the underworld, by the underworld, and for the underworld. The music is a little naughty. It's a little uh, mysterious. It, it, it's, it's filled with sensuality. Um, it's just amazing how he was using the underworld as the inspiration for what he was writing at the time. And so it was the highest level of artistic achievement. And this was true of a lot of African-American musicians who came through these clubs. Yes, the clubs were segregated. Yes, they were owned by mobsters. But Ellington understood that they were providing opportunities that allowed for him and others to explore the highest levels of this art form. And they did it gloriously during this period. So when the 60s and the 70s roll around, a lot of these musicians were called on the carpet for having partaken in this plantation system that now was sort of, with the, with the passage of history, had been revealed for what it was. You know, that it was a racist plantation system. How could you partake in that? And they were, they were expected to answer for that. And they tried. I mean, they explained it as we are explaining it right now, that basically it was the system and they were seeking to make the most out of the system for themselves and their fellow musicians that they could. Um, and that's the way it was at the time and that you really couldn't buck the system or you wouldn't have a career. Um, and so that's why they submitted to it. Some uh, were better at explaining that than others. Some fell afoul of that, like Armstrong to a certain extent, Sammy Davis Jr., and some of the others that sadly um, became sort of racially ostracized within their, their own community. But it's, it's, it's a reaction on the part of um, African Americans in the 60s and 70s that basically created a intellectual momentum that would eventually bring about the, the breaking down of that system. For instance, in Las Vegas, as the last of the great jazz entertainers were beginning to perform there, the racial dynamics of Las Vegas became a major issue. And there were civil rights protests against the casinos and against the clubs for their um, what still existed in the 1960s up into the, in, well into the 70s in Vegas was a segregated door policy. Um, and people just weren't going to stand for that anymore. And they weren't going to stand for racial segregation in the clubs. And so there was uh, a movement against that. Uh, and jazz got caught up in that. 
I mean, one other way that you could sort of escape the system, probably only available to you if you were white, per your biggest example in the book, Frank Sinatra, synonymous with the mob in a lot of ways. I mean, certainly members of the U.S. government thought so. You know, you say that he melded the worlds of of music and organized crime in a kind of unprecedented fashion. What do you mean by that? And, you know, how long did it take Old Blue Eyes to go from worker on the plantation to plantation owner, as you put it? Yeah, well, Sinatra is a really interesting case because he comes from Sicilian roots. And so Sinatra is, is very much a creation of this system. Frank was someone who went all in. In fact, Frank was someone who I think was born all in in Hoboken, New Jersey. And his mother, who is a po- sort of a political operative in Hoboken, New Jersey, and was not a- averse to um, using those levers of power that involved the criminal underworld. Frank's godfather was a guy named Willie Moretti, who was a made man in the mafia, a very powerful figure in New Jersey and New York. So Frank is born into it. He didn't create it. One of the great pleasures of this book, I think, was to put Frank Sinatra in context, because people do think, oh, you know, Frank was a wannabe mobster or whatever. There's a lot of misconceptions about his involvement. Yes, he was very connected and involved in the mob underworld, and he did it by choice, Um, and he did it in, in some cases enthusiastically. He cultivated relationships with prominent mobsters all through his career, and he used it. The famous case of him pressuring band leader Tommy Dorsey to let him out of a an onerous contract, sending some mob guys over to threaten Dorsey. There are a few instances like this in Frank's career. But what's fascinating is, because he was white, and this is totally a racial thing, I think Frank had the one privilege that black musicians didn't have, is that Frank could create his own plantation. By the time Frank does this, in the 1950s and 60s, he creates his own record label, reprise records, he becomes the plantation owner, but he played a role in the uh, the picketing and the protesting that took place in Las Vegas that changed the racial rules in Las Vegas. And Frank put his neck out, often marching for civil rights, using his influence to open up the clubs, to insist that musicians like Nat King Cole were able to eat in the club. I mean, it seems crazy that by the 1970s, black musicians were being required to eat in the kitchen not in the restaurant of the club, that black people were not allowed on the casino floor. These were all things that had to change, and Sinatra played a role in that. Um, So, as I often say, writing about characters in the underworld, no one person is all good or all bad. Totally. And I think it's hard to extract what jazz is today or was in the 60s and 70s or 30s and 40s or at the beginning, you know, from its context. And I think you really provocatively ask, you know, would jazz have been the same without prohibition, without its dependence on gangsters? And counter slash follow up, now that the mob isn't involved and you've got, you know, your jazz at Lincoln Centers, you know, I've seen jazz at the Smithsonian, at the National Gallery. How is it different? 
Well, all interesting questions. And when we talk about this, I think we have to separate the music from the business of jazz. These are kind of separate topics in a way. I mean, obviously, they're so interconnected. They're almost the same thing. But jazz came into development slightly before the business template was laid down. The horse was out of the barn, and jazz was developing in the streets, literally, uh, before there was a business model for it. And it was immensely exciting and greeted with great enthusiasm long before it was quantified as a business entity. So I think the music would have continued to develop in one form or another because the music could not be denied. What was happening musically was so exciting uh, to people who heard it. It was such a cultural phenomenon that it would have developed. It definitely would not have been developed in the same way because the Prohibition era created uh, an entire universe for the dissemination of the music. So through speakeasies, for instance, every illegal drinking spot had a small jazz trio or a small jazz group. Uh, the larger clubs like the Cotton Club um, and some of the others, they had huge orchestras that would not have been able to be financed were it not for the illegal money that was being generated through the reality of prohibition. So that whole jazz era, what we refer to as the jazz age, is so intertwined with prohibition that we can't really separate the two. But as the decades go on, jazz goes through many different derivations. You know, then comes the swing era of the 1930s, large orchestras, dance orchestras, very commercially popular era for jazz. Then in the 40s and the 50s comes bebop. Bebop is very challenging and almost avant-garde music when it came along. Um, kind of uh, atonal, cerebral uh, form of jazz, played in small, intimate clubs. Uh, not everyone was down with it. Luckily, 52nd Street existed at the time, and uh, a notorious club owner by the name of Morris Levy, who started the club Birdland uh, in the late in 1949, um, was it was it was a hoodlum and a crooked guy who, uh, as a matter of policy, ripped off musicians um, and was known for that. Um, but he was very progressive in terms of the music. And his, and his business model was true jazz aficionados, which are the core audience for the music. They don't want watered down jazz. They don't want softened jazz. They want cutting edge jazz. And at that time, that meant they want bebop. And so, you know, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, all the great bebop musicians of the 1950s played in, played at Birdland, which became a hugely significant club in terms of the development of the music. And it also happened to be probably one of the most mobbed up clubs in history. Uh, in terms of where it is now, one of the great joys about writing this book was getting to the end of this story and having to reflect upon what it has meant for the contemporary state of the music. And that's something I, I don't think I had really thought about much before. Um, but so what you have is this era where the mob is separated from the clubs. It happens in the 1980s. Major prosecutions against organized crime 
using the RICO laws, racketeering laws, they separate the mob from a lot of their businesses. Uh, they separate the mob from the casinos in Las Vegas. They begin to break down the economic model that had sustained organized crime for so long. And, and so the night the mob is no longer involved in the nightclubs. And there's a period in the 80s where, where there's a real existential threat to the music. A lot of the clubs go under. A lot of the clubs that had the luxury of not having to generate profit now when they're on their own, they, they couldn't sustain it, and a lot of them went under. And there's a period where jazz was really on shaky ground in starting in the late 70s and into the 80s. And you see a kind of, you do see a kind of watered down Kenny G style of jazz that starts to come into popularity. And there's a real danger there, given the fact that the business model had been broken down in this way, that jazz might not survive it. And, and then what happened is jazz musicians, some very significant jazz musicians like Wynton Marsalis and others, sort of regrouped and started to recreate a model for presenting the music through cultural institutions like Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York and the San Francisco Jazz Center in San Francisco. These are fancy uh, clubs that are financed by don uh, donations from wealthy donors. Um, and they've created a new model for the music. The clubs still exist. I prefer the clubs. I prefer the smoky basement. Well, they're not smoky anymore, are they? Uh, I prefer the basement clubs that are more intimate than the cultural institutions. But jazz has come out on the other side of this long period of, of being connected to the underworld. And I think that's a testament to the glory of this art form, which was always meant to represent freedom. We have links in the show notes to TJ English's new book, Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz in the Underworld, as well as his six other books about organized crime if you just haven't gotten enough of the mob. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>